The following episode will deal with stories and depictions of torture and war. These things I would not recommend for people that are faint of heart or for young children. It's a very mature theme and topic. It's a hard thing to discuss also because we can't really wrap our heads around and understand why an entire society would think that it's all right to mutilate and torture people. We hope that this episode will help understand the mindset of the time and culture. That's not to pick on Native American peoples and say that they were inferior or barbaric compared to European peoples, because they weren't. Europeans and Africans and Asians had their own different horrible ways to deal with enemies. This episode is to remind us that people are people. There's good people and evil people and good things and bad things in all cultures. And yes, I'm talking about even to this day in American culture, European culture, Asian culture, African culture. These things are still under the surface and in every man and woman's heart. The reason we need to tell these things is so that it is not repeated. Summer had just peaked. August was a few nights away. Meticulously, he spread across his face and body pigments of red and black. He fixed his headdress of three large eagle feathers upon his crown. Looking down, he reached for his finely chiseled axe of stone. Blunt, yet strong. He grasped the handles with his fingers, recalling to mind how many moons it took to carve the rock to bore the hole in the head, and then to place it in a sapling, waiting for the tree to grow inside the tool. His mind began to wander back, thinking about how many of his family and clan had passed on since he started making the axe. The village and the nation was much smaller than it had been before. His town needed more people if it was to survive. This was his chance to improve himself among the Mohawk people. This was a chance to help those who were grieving, those who had lost sons and daughters. He arose and walked out of the home and straight for the center of his town. A single wooden pole was placed there. It was the war pole. Its faded gray color and deep groove showed the scars from many blows from many years gone by. The man raised his weapon in his hand into the blue, sun-filled sky, and with a loud cry he drove it into the pole, leaving it embedded in the wood, and adding a new mark to the dozens of others. One by one other men came forward and handed the war chief a stick painted red. He looked at them. No words were needed. They had given the wood as a commitment to join him in battle. They would also take up the hatchet and go on the warpath with him. Soon the songs of war were being chanted in the large group that had now assembled. Then the dancing began. A frenzy of emotion and ecstasy was in full display. Drums and turtle rattles added to the chorus, and they continued dancing and whooping. They sang until they reached the point of exhaustion. 
Finally, as they could go on no longer, they retired to enjoy a meal and share in the smoking of sacred tobacco. Many of them fell asleep, but when they awoke, speeches were given by the village leaders about honor, pride, and the qualities of a warrior with strong orenda. The chief prepared to lead his party, and the men gathered together. They donned their armor, breastplates of wooden slats woven together. In one hand they carried their weapons, and in another shields of wood that were proof against any arrowhead. Women prepared food and other provisions for them as they prepared to depart. As they left the village, songs and chants continued to be sung by all until they faded away from the ears of those left behind in the town. The sounds became softer and softer as they marched into the fields and then the woods heading north to Huron country. Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to Episode 8, The Morning Wars. Now, Caleb, as we alluded to last time uh, when discussing morning wars, we're not talking about a time of day. We're talking about grief. Is that right? That's right. So how does, how does warfare tie into grief, and how is that a part of their life? Well, this is something that's very unique to the Native American culture and uh, also the religion almost uh, they looked at uh, mourning and revenge and something we're going to talk about called arenda uh, these were all things that when the Europeans came over and they saw the things that they did they had no concept they'd never seen anything like this but they had they had ways of uh, torture and avenging someone after they were dead and it was expected so that you know spirits of loved ones could rest in peace because if they weren't revenged or a killing was put in their place then their spirit might not be able to rest properly yeah you um one thing that i i was reading in a, a book recently and they they pointed out the fact that they didn't have a legal system like we did they had a structure between nations that was completely built on retaliation. They didn't have necessarily like a peace treaty with an enemy after a while. They would they would keep peace by basically, you don't attack us because if you do, if you come in here and kill our people, we're gonna go there and kill your people. And that would kind of keep this, this very fragile peace between nations. But what we're gonna get into is there's some things that took this very shaky balance of peace between nations and all of a sudden you add mass deaths from disease and then also uh, monopolies on trade with the Europeans as they come and then also throw guns into the mix. It just destabilizes everything. Yes, it just, the morning wars went from being something that, that everyone did and was able to basically, they used it as a way to replace people in their tribes in their clans when they died or were murdered to just an endless cycle of death between every single northeastern nation yeah so and in addition to that it's incredibly complicated records are sparse um but that's pretty much what it was they viewed if they were not an active trading partner they viewed you as automatically at war it's not like somebody was neutral either you're 
allied with us and were openly trading and friendly, which that could fall apart at any time as well, or you were our enemy and it's open season. Yeah, when the, the first colonists were coming over, they were all saying, we want to be allies with you, we want to be allies with you, and a lot of the natives would say, we trade with you. They're the same thing. Mm -hmm. Either if we trade with you, you are ally. If yeah. we, don't, we like you, we'll yeah. take your stuff, and we'll give you stuff. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's back up a bit, and let's talk about what warfare was like. We had mentioned in the previous episode how these plagues and diseases had come in, and pretty much decimated maybe half of your your town is wiped out and like you said you need if you want to function as a society you need to replace your population and the other than you know procreating you know having more children which if half of them are dying it, you can't do it fast enough so they viewed it as well we already are at war with these people what if we step it up a notch and get more captives and bring them back and assimilate them into our culture and then our society can survive and we won't die out. So, do you ever watch Star Trek? Uh, I used to as a kid. What was like the scariest uh, villain in Star Trek when you were growing up? The scariest one? Yeah. Off Next Generation? Next Generation. Because in Voyager there was this creepy alien type thing that got on the hull of the ship and that always freaked me out as a kid. Mm -hmm. But in Next Generation there was that blob monster thing that freaked me that, out. The tar monster. That <laughs> yeah, the tar monster. <laughs> the scariest one for me was the Borg. Oh. You think you know you know where I'm going with this? What was the Borg's main line whenever they approached a, a new ship or species? You will be assimilated. You will be... Resistance is futile. That, you know, the, the, not, it's not to say that the Iroquois are cyborg, heartless uh, people, but that was kind of the mindset. We, we are going to go in to this town and we're going to assimilate as many people as we can so that our nation can survive mm -hmm. what's what's the reason that a, a lot of the european nations would go to war basically for land uh trade tr trade rights things like that these nations were living in a place where there was unlimited amounts of land they had no need to conquer more uh, more territory. Eventually they will when we get into the beaver wars because they too are fighting over who has right to trade furs. But at this point, they don't think of warfare like we do. Like, we got to go in, we got to wipe these people out, we got to destroy their villages and their towns. They basically had simple thing in mind. Avenge somebody that's been dead and find a replacement for the person that's been dead and bring them back to your village. Or to increase your standing, it could be a rite of passage when you're becoming a man to go off to war to get a good name for yourself, to get stronger Orenda. Um, do we want to talk about Orenda really quick, Caleb? Yeah, sounds good. So we had mentioned in our hunting and fishing things, we talked about that um, most Native people believe that all people and animals and even inanimate objects had a spirit. Is that right? Yes. But they more or less saw it as orenda. And it, it can't really be translated. We kind of say spirit, but it's almost like a state of power. One thing that I read that it, it has a, a kind of a similarity to that might help people understand it is chi. Like in uh, the Asian culture, mm -hmm. it's like your inner spirit and your inner power that's inside you. And... Some people have more arenda, and so and more. Some animals have more arenda, yes. and the more arenda you have, the more respected you are, 
because you're stronger or maybe smarter and craftier. So animals like an elusive deer that they may be tracking could have stronger orenda than a regular one. And if you happen to catch that deer after lots of perseverance, then you acquire that orenda, if that makes sense. And so, but anything could, the trees, the plants, the hills, uh, astronomical units, everything in the universe, they believed, had a, a, a spirit and an amount yep. of energy. Flint. Mm -hmm. Flint itself, quartz. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's very interesting, and it's hard for us, you know, with our mindset, because it's a totally different mm -hmm. worldview. And not only if you, say, if you killed a deer with a renda, you would acquire it, but the weapon you had would then almost become enchanted with the arenda of the animal you killed which would make your weapon more sacred and make you a better hunter in the future. Yep. And so once we get into, uh, in a couple weeks, talking about European contact, they believed the guns had extremely strong Orenda because it's a stick that has power in it. Well, yeah. what else is that? That's something with very strong Orenda. Mm -hmm. Thunder. Mm -hmm. Thunder in a bottle. Um, so do we want to talk about uh, battles? You know, we think of large pitch battles either a Roman times where tens of thousands of people line up on a battlefield and they charge each other and try and outflank and outmaneuver uh, but that's not really how uh, Native American warfare worked uh, to start off as we mentioned in the story if somebody wanted to go to war they would prepare themselves sometimes they may have a dream or a vision or they may be out to avenge somebody or they may be looking to increase their standing in a village or they uh they could have any number of reasons yeah a big one was uh, if you were married into a family i believe this is it the clan mother that you are then married into when you move in you are then the person responsible for avenging people in your clan mm -hmm. so if i marry someone in the bear clan and move into the longhouse and somebody has been murdered by another nation up the road it's expected of you to step up and be willing to avenge the death of that person. Mm -hmm. yep. So if you were to go out into battle, you would need to take people with you. Now, generally speaking, you know, we, we talked about the Grand Council, and the Iroquois would sometimes come together as a Grand Council and declare war on a nation. But it could be a simple, you know, each of the five and then six nations were autonomous. And so it could just be the Seneca Nation declaring war on a people and going to do a raid, or it could just be one town going and doing a raid. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was still a permission-seeking thing, and nobody. it wasn't like they drafted. It wasn't like everybody had to go. It was the people that felt like that they wanted to go. We'll see in the 1630s that uh, uh, when Champlain comes that they're warring basically with the Mohawk for the majority of the time. Uh, except for in one battle where they come down and fight the Onondaga and the Oneida, but they basically have no contact with the Seneca at all, even though they're fighting the Iroquois. They're just dealing with the Mohawk for the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. And so, as we mentioned in the story, there was a pole in the center of town, and it was the war pole. And so a chief would come out with his tomahawk, and if he wanted to start and go off on a war campaign, he would take his tomahawk and drill it into the war pole to leave a mark. And that was his ceremonial way of saying, you know, kind of like in the movies, draw a line in the sand, everybody who's with me come over to my side. That's saying, all right, who will join me? Who will come fight with me? You know, I feel like we need to go out on a campaign for such and such a reason. 
and the story we mentioned is actually taken from firsthand accounts on how uh, they proceeded to get ready to pump themselves up. You know, you see people at a football game beforehand pumping themselves up and getting really emotional and getting into it. It was kind of like that. Yeah, we think of our war chiefs like our generals, where once you're in the military, they're basically a dictator over you, your officers. They looked at things differently. Basically, the war chief, he was in charge while you were on the war path. But everything before and after, and a lot of times during, it was really up to everyone. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it was difficult to keep everybody pumped up for a battle. Because what happened a lot of times is they would get close to a battle and then they would work something out and everybody would go home. Half the people would still want to fight. Half the people would want to go home. Yeah. If the trip's taking too long, well, I got to get back because, uh, you know, hunting season's coming up. So uh, me and Bob here, we're going to head back. And uh, you, good luck with you. You know, good luck. Uh, but that being said, let's get back to battles. They weren't battles, like we said, set-piece matches. It was more sneak attack, quick raids. Because th that's not how they worked. You know, uh, Champlain initially said they did march in tight formations and come up together, but it was pretty much you'd, once you got into an enemy territory, you'd want to be really quiet. You'd want to send advanced scouts out to make sure that there's nobody patrolling around. I read that there's a theory that they actually changed their war tactics after yes. fighting Champlain. Uh, some historians believe that they did actually march in, in close proximity and come in as a big group and fight. Well, and that's what lead. he mentions in the initial contact. Yeah. Once they figure out guns, they, you know, tight formations don't work anymore. Yeah, and then it just becomes guerrilla warfare after mm -hmm. that. But still, you want to... So you, you're tightening it together so that you, know, you can't be overrun, but you still send out sentries to go ahead. But you want to find usually people that are outside the village that are just either going out on a on a trade mission or going out hunting or fishing or out in the fields working sneak in grab 5 10 20 depending on how many people are there overwhelm them so usually you know not a lot of people are killed in these skirmishes mm -hmm. uh, you know maybe a couple sometimes you just may have them completely surrounded and it's over before it even begins yeah uh and why is that? Why, why would they tend to do sneak attacks instead of full-out warfare? Well, a couple logistic reasons. you got to remember, they don't have um, vehicles to transport their foods and goods. They're deep in enemy territory. They may have some provisions with them, but they can't do a long holdout siege. And also, if you are trying to take over a whole town, it's probably not going to be that successful because the towns are very well defended. And... A lot of these villages around are neighboring and related to each other, so if somebody gets out to send for help, you could have hundreds or thousands of people descending on you within a day, mm -hmm. uh, and then you'll be the one surrounded. Here's another interesting thing I read, and I'm not sure if you heard this. Uh, we as Americans and a lot of Europeans, we've had this, this mindset drilled into us that to die in battle is a glorious cause, and you will be honored and remembered by those because you put up a good fight and you died for the cause. But they looked at it completely differently. It was shameful to die in battle. You know, and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. But it's like you go off to battle and you get killed. Everybody back in the village will just assume, oh, he was a weakling. You know, he didn't, he didn't have, have strong arenda. He didn't have strong arenda, and that's why he was killed. So 
nobody wanted to risk getting killed. So they would only fight if they thought they could win, mm-hmm. which ended, which created this attack and retreat, attack and retreat from everybody. Come into a sneak attack where you're sure that you can catch them unaware, be very successful at killing them and capturing them, and then get the heck out of there as mm-hmm. quick as you can. Yep, because they're going to be on you. Um, do we want to talk about some of the weaponry? Uh, and we're going to be talking about pre-contact with Europeans. Um, so they, they had a vast array of different kinds of uh, weapons and implements. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about bow and arrow. Everybody, uh, you know, it's the stereotypical weapon of the Native Americans, um, how they made it. Their, their bows tended to be made out of certain types of wood. Some very popular ones were uh, ash and hickory and maple and even cedar and locust. And uh, these would be made and a lot of times lined with uh, like tendons from animals to give them strength. And then they would also, they could use tendons or even intestines to make the, the strings. Hmm. You know, basically think of a, a violin string or a bow string. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a, a violin, violin bow string? Yes. Versus a, a no, bow not bow a violin bow string. That's horsehair. But the, the strings itself on the violin, yeah. I mean, you, you've all heard the joke about the violin maker looking for cats because he was using cat gut to make the strings. But they, they had a very similar way to do it, using deer intestines and things like that. They could twist them and dry them out, and they'd become very strong. And uh, it would be a lot easier to make it out of that than, uh, uh, you know, braiding uh, twigs Rope. and things together. it just take too much time, and, it you know, if it got wet, it would fray and rot. And uh, they had different types of arrowheads, too, didn't they, Andrew? Yeah, uh well, I mean, in different time periods, it, w- it was different, um, but and different cultures had different shapes. Um, but, you know, they pretty much were the standard. You know, you see a, a triangular point, and then down at the bottom, there's a smaller base where you could attach to the wood stock. Yeah, it would be notched out, and it could be the, the shaft to the arrow would be carved out. You could then place the lower part of the arrowhead in it and then basically tie a string around it to hold it in place into the string. And they basically, the, the Eastern Indians had two basic types, I guess they'll call them. You, could, you would have your hunting broadhead, and you'd also have a war broadhead. And can you think of what the difference would be? Uh, I, I'm going to assume that a hunting broadhead would be to make a quick kill, and a war broadhead would mean to cause the most damage and pain. Well, the war broadhead can't be pulled out. I see. The war, the war broadhead was made to go in, and then if you tried to pull the arrow out, it would leave the broadhead inside. I see. So it's, it's got like a barb yeah. on the inside. No, it wasn't barbed. It just wasn't tied necessarily onto oh, the, the shaft. I see. So when you pulled it, it would just slide right out and be stuck in. And uh, they found these in bones and skulls and things like that from excavating sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They also had the war club, right, Caleb? Yeah, the hammer. <laughs> so it was pretty much, tell me if I'm wrong, it's pretty much a car- single piece of carved wood, and think of it like a big ball on the end of it mm-hmm. that's that's carved out, and then you've got a handle, and it's pretty much like a hammer, you know, just in ball shape, solid solid wood. I mean, mm-hmm. can you imagine getting hit in the head with one of those? Yeah. And uh, usually they were very nicely decorated, um, you know, somebody that spent a lot of time taking care of them. And so that was the main thing, you know, in close combat. You just aim for that skull and knock them out, yeah. and that's it. Spears were the same way. And um, 
for those, I'm sure everybody knows this, but things tended, weapons and knives for hunting and also warfare tend to be made out of flint. It's a stone that can be, uh, that can be uh, cracked with other stones and made very sharp edges. And it's stronger than any other type of stone you can find in the Northeast that will just kind of crack and break. Flint, even if it cracks, you can just chip at it some more and get the, the blade right back. And like Andrew said, where a war club would be, could be very well decorated and pretty, the spears could be the same way. Uh, spears, the Iroquois themselves tended to use them more for fishing than warfare, but a lot of the other nations used spears, and they would be 8 to 10 feet long. You'd have to be like an Olympic athlete yeah. to throw that accurately. But they I'm, were made to not only be thrown and be very deadly because of the weight for how long they were, but also you could keep people at, you know out of arm's reach if they had a club uh, or a knife or something yeah, like, like a, that. Like a halberdier or a pallbearer in yeah. medieval times. And then they also had uh, stone tomahawks, axes, mm-hmm. you know, with the flint on the handle. The iconic be, weapon of yeah. the Northeast India. Eventually, uh, once contact with Europeans come, uh, they're going to change into metal hatchets, tomahawks, which we more recognize today. But originally, they were flint, so same thing, a handle. And uh, how did they make those, Caleb? How did they get the wood to stay in the in the axe head? Well, there was a, there's a couple neat techniques to do it. Obviously, you carve a hole into the wood, or I'm sorry, into the, the stone, and they had a couple ways of doing that. One was to take a piece of quartz, which is a harder stone, and you could basically put it on a, a stick, picture like you see the guy rubbing the stick back and forth to make the fire, spinning it in his hands, put the quartz in the end of the stick, and then spin it back and forth, and you could literally carve through stone, It'd take a long time. A hand drill. Yeah, and you could make a hand drill. And this was the same technique on a much smaller scale that was actually used to make the wampum, drilling into their, their shells to make their wampum belts. Uh, so you get your hole through the, through the stone, and there's a couple ways you could do it. You could get just a tree limb that was thicker on one than the other, put the thin end in, and just pound it through. But they also had another really cool way to do it that would be a very secure way, and that was, hey, we're not going to be at war till next year. Here's a sapling. So they would just slide the the, 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 axe, head. the axe head down the tree, and if it's a fast-growing tree like a maple or a willow or something like that, by the, by the end of the summer, it's grown completely around both ends of it, and you have this nice thick wood on each end, and it cannot move. Seems a seems a lot more snug than some of the stuff we buy at department stores. <laughs> yeah, how many how many shovel heads or axe heads <laughs> have we broken over the years trying to do yard work? So those were the main weapons. They also had knives, mm-hmm. which I mean, if you if you're down to just knives, you, you should have brought better weapons. But mm-hmm. they did have those as well. Same thing, flint flint knives that could be used to to puncture or stab. Um, so let's say we're out on the warpath. We've just surrounded a bunch of people. Maybe we killed a couple guys, and what happens next? We, we start running away. Maybe we've captured 10 people, maybe a mixture of a few men, a few women, and a handful of children. What, what's going to happen? Well, maybe we want to start with the men. This is a hard part. Um, now, initially, many of them may be... Uh, immediately their hands may be mutilated. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reasoning behind that is 
if their hands are broken or they may even cut off fingers or rip out fingernails, their hands are not going to be able to wrestle a weapon from you to fight back. Um, if, as they get a little further out, uh, the tortures may pick up at the end of the night once they're resting. Also, if, if they killed men, they tended to scalp them too, didn't yes, they? Yes, they would. Um, so if somebody was killed, they would scalp them and uh, don't want to leave much to the imagination, but um, they would cut away at your forehead and cut around and then you've got your hair there and it would literally just pop right off and they would use the scalps as a sign of more or less proof. Mm-hmm. Oh, so-and-so said that they went out and killed 10 warriors, but we don't really believe them because they didn't come back with any scalps. Also, I read that they believed that the Arenda was at the top of your head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had, you know, the spirituality of it, it came into play there as well. Yeah. So, uh, yes, dead people were immediately scalped and taken away. Um, so then, uh, if you're stopping at a place for the night, um, they may engage in torture of some of the men and... Again, this is a different time and place, a different culture, um, but torture was a common practice, and usually out of an attack of revenge, um, they still there was still this sign of respect though, because the person it was it was like a play, almost. Um, the torturer knew what was going to ha- happen, and the torch be- person being tortured knew what was going to happen. The person being tortured was expected to play a part where they took it like a man mm-hmm. you, you know not screaming not begging or pleading for their life the, their job was to sit there and and go through the the pain and to take it with a straight face and if he could do that that proved that he had strong orenda and the other people would respect him for it do we how much detail do we want to go well, into we don't have to get into it too much but i will tell you that um I recently read a book on Samuel uh, Samuel D. Champlain, and he did some writings on, uh, he was with the Huron, I believe, and they captured an Iroquois, and he had to see them torture this person. Mm -hmm. And he was amazed that the person was able to, to, a lot of the time, not even make a peep. And they they were ripping out fingernails, digging in and pulling out tendons in the arms, taking uh, sticks and firebrands and poking them mm-hmm. with, with hot embers and ashes. And uh, at one point, uh, the, the, the Huron asked Champlain if he wanted to get in on some of this action. Yeah, and he and, said, you know, this is totally against, we don't do this where I come from, this is not right. And he said, I'll shoot him if you want. Yeah. And they said, no, he, he, he still needs to suffer more mm-hmm. because... His suffering is, I guess, appeasing the, the dead one that they're avenging. Mm-hmm. Um, Eventually, when they saw how upset, upset he, was. he was, they said, okay. And he took a, a gun, musket ball, and shot him in the head uh, to relieve his suffering. Because, um, But yeah. That's... But once you're done being tortured, that's not it either. They had other ways of, uh, you know... I don't even want to say insulting the body because, like you said, there was almost uh, a point of respect in some ways in this. Yeah, they saw that you had strong arenda, and again, this is not something that happened all the time, but it did happen. And uh, you know, we don't want to we don't want to sugarcoat anything, but we don't want to make it sound like this is you know barbaric, caveman kind of stuff. But there was a form of ritualistic cannibalism 
that could have gone along with it too. Um, so after a person succumbed to death, they may uh, dismember you, chop off your legs, arms, decapitate you, and cook up and eat portions of your body, not because they were cannibals per se, but again, playing into the spirituality of the Arenda, realizing that this was a strong person. And, you know, if you're ingesting them, you're acquiring some of their Orenda mm -hmm. out of a sign of respect. Yeah, you're, you're right to point that out when you mentioned that there was cannibalism. It wasn't, you know, like you said, in, in some of these crazy uh, tribes and, and on islands and stuff where there's just people eating people because they don't they can't raise cows. So they just war on other people and eat people. You're right. It was it was much more about acquiring the arenda and part of their spiritual ceremonies. And if you remember back to our uh, our first episode on the peacemaker and Hiawatha, we mentioned that you know that uh, when he came, he was seeing all all of these things mm -hmm. between the the five nations between the five to, nations to each other. and. Uh, so if you remember back to our first episode when we talked about the Peacemaker and Hiawatha and Tadadaho, you remember how many of the, the Indians were appalled at the fact that Tadadaho ate men's flesh. So we can see from this relatively ancient story that, you know, this was something that was kind of taboo at some point and it, it kind of got out of whack somewhere down the line. We don't know exactly where. But at some point, cannibalism was okay in some tribes and taboo in others. Um, but when the peacemaker came, this was still around. And if you remember, Hiawatha, he had just recently had his wife and children killed. And what was he doing? He was preparing to go out on the war path to mm -hmm. avenge them. Yeah. And so I think that we should probably throw in here, uh, talk about the wampum belts and and how they were used to, as an alternative to having to go out and avenge people when they're dead, they believed that the wampum belts basically appeased the spirit of the one that was dead, and we talked about in the clan system mourning. Mm -hmm. All of this is really tied in together. The wampum belts, the clan systems, the way they mourned, the mourning wars and how they took avenge and how they, you know, brought peace to the one that was dead and also peace to the families of the ones that was murdered. There were things in place to avoid all of these things. Uh, but somewhere down the line, just like in all cultures, you know, it just spins out of control. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the five nations stayed unified. And they had a system on how to not just descend into chaos and anarchy mm -hmm. with the five of them. But at the same time, you know, they're, they're the five arrows bound together and they're strong. And so they're able to be... A dominant force in the northeast against all these other nations because these other nations are not unified mm -hmm. and the iroquois are and they're better organized and so it makes them you know for lack of a better word the boogeyman of the area they're, they're, most of the tribes are terrified of the iroquois or the mohawk or the seneca mm -hmm. to even hear that there's a group of them it just sends whole communities into terror because they're so such known as strong and uh, amazing warriors now, so getting back to our group of people that are being taken back as prisoners of war, so some of the men may have been mutilated, some may have been tortured, uh, maybe they haven't, maybe they get back to the village all right, 
So they get back into town and they get greeted at the gates by the women and the children. They come out singing and celebrating and then a gauntlet starts. Do you want to describe what the gauntlet was? Well, if you've ever heard heard the term running the gauntlet, this, this is it. This is it. Everyone, including the children, would grab whatever they wanted, be it sticks or clubs or whips or rocks. Th- thorns, rocks, and you were expected to walk down the line and take the punishment from the entire tribe. Yeah, so they line up on two sides, so they've got a row and you're going down the middle. So they line up all the prisoners and they have to run the gauntlet, run down the line. And so you're taking blows and hits and jabs. So they get down to the end, they've run the gauntlet and after the clan mother has stared at them, they decide whether they're fit to be adopted. Now, sometimes people are horribly injured. Sometimes people could die if they took a, you know, a big hit to the head. But um, generally speaking, most of the group gets through. And then um, the clan mother decides on adoption. Now, there's two kinds of adoption. One was, um, you know, so-and-so has lost a daughter. You know, let's, let's say, you know, beautiful flower. Beautiful flower was a beautiful six-year-old girl, and she's died. Well, here's a, a seven-year-old girl that's just been captured. And so she would be given to this other family as a replacement for the daughter that's died and would be given the name Beautiful Flower. That's the type of adoption I would want out of the two. <laughs> the other type of adoption, what are we calling it? Sacrificial adoption? It was, um, I'm not sure exactly the term, but it was a, um, it was a, it was still a replacement adoption, but it may be, maybe you've got a teenage son that was killed in a raid. And so you could have the choice. It was your choice. You could adopt this person to become your replacement for your 17, 18 year old son, or if you wanted revenge, the, this person would be uh, ritualistically tortured uh, in manners that we described before in the village. Now, generally speaking, they would have a feast for the person. Maybe a day or two after, they would have a big feast. Uh, the person generally knew what was about to happen, and so they were, they were there, and, and you know they had a good time, and they had a party thrown in their honor, but after that, um, There were many creative ways. Sometimes they would be set on a scaffolding and people would burn them. And it was a slow and not not good thing to happen. Um, We don't have solid numbers to say, well, certain percentage were tortured and certain percentage were adopted. Um, Generally speaking, women and children were almost always adopted. You know, they did not do this to women and children generally. Uh, There are instances of it happening. Usually it was more quickly than the men. The men was a more ritualistic torture, but sometimes the women and children were killed. Um, very rare though. Um, but after this happens, you are considered part of the family. You know, beautiful flower, they treat you as if you're your own daughter. And as we'll see going forward, you know, initially this is just um, other tribes being adopted, but then it becomes, you know, you're seeing settlers coming in and Maybe the parents get killed in a raid and they're adopting white children or they're adopting slaves or free blacks or they're adopting uh, all all different kinds of people into um, their society. And so you're going to start seeing this mix. Uh, Eventually it gets to the point where the Seneca have more 
adopted people as part of their nation than they do actual native-born Senecas. It, it just gets to that point where they just need people and they need to go out. And so you had blacks and whites and other uh, native peoples and, and mixed peoples uh, all living together but being raised as Iroquoian peoples. So I just want to preface, Caleb, that um, you know this is not, again, picking on the Iroquois because these things were happening about different other nations and how many gross, horrible things were Europeans doing at the same time or Arabs or Africans or Asians or Mongols. There were horrible things that happened in all cultures during this time, same time period, you know, we're, we're talking about. So we really, you know, we can't judge, but hopefully this gives you a perspective on what the world was like at the time. And, you know, the disease has come ahead now, but starting in our next episode, we're finally going to get to the point where there's going to be contact. And that's really going to change things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we said earlier, these morning wars, these were a way of life for everybody. But once first contact comes in, this is just going to change warfare, you know, like nothing that these people have ever seen before. And it's going to do terrible damage to their culture and to their societies. And some nations will find ways to make it work for their advantage. And other tribes will be wiped off the face of the earth and will never be seen from again. Yep. So next time, Caleb, we'll be talking about um, Samuel de Champlain and his contact with the Iroquois. And like you said, it kind of stinks in some ways because we have to talk from kind of a one-sided standpoint. But you will find from Champlain's writings that he was not like some of these other uh, lords coming over from Lund from England. Uh, if you read this guy, he really tries to paint an honest picture. And even though he's allied with the Algonquins and the Huron and he even wars with the Iroquois, you'll find in his writing that he takes pity on them and wants to make peace with them too. Mm -hmm. And so this is a really cool story, and it will have a really cool guy, and, and I hope that you'll all learn some really cool stuff. So until next time, you can still get in contact with us, um, like us on Facebook. You can email us at longhousepodcast.com. Don't forget to leave an iTunes review if you have not yet. That helps us get bumped in the ratings. Um, and then you can also check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. And until next time, you will be assimilated. Oh, come on. <laughs> Bye, folks. Bye, everybody.